You want to? <clears throat> okay. I don't remember how to start this anymore, Chris. It's been too long. It's been like way too long. I. It's been yeah. like, God, ugh, like a month. I mean, however long it's been for you, it's been a lot longer for me. This is the first, this is my first podcast appearance since uh, I stopped doing my own podcast. <laughs> oh, that's right. Idle thumbs. All right. We just have mm -hmm. to talk about that, but I'm going to do a quick okay. intro. Sure. Welcome to the Dialogue Box. This is Gwen Frey, and I'm joined today with Chris Remo. Uh, hello. Hello. Um, let's talk about you, Chris, because you just mentioned that you used to have a podcast. You used to do this all the time, right? I did. I was a, <laughs> uh, I was a regular podcaster for a decade. I started a podcast with uh, Jake Rodkin and Nick Brecken in 2008 called Idle Thumbs, which was a weekly video game podcast that we did for many years and uh, had other people involved on and off, Sean Vanneman, Dan Danielle Riendo, James Spafford. Um, and uh, that is on sort of, I guess, indefinite hiatus at the moment, uh, along with another podcast that we've been doing for about a year called Important If True, which was a sort of absurdist comedy slash state of the insane technological world uh, kind of discussion. Uh, that we did for about a year. So that too is on some kind of indefinite, we don't know how to do this right now, given the current state of our lives. Yeah. So this is my first my first podcast in over a year. Oh man, that's mm -hmm. nuts. It's weird. It's usually I get somebody on here and I have them like introduce themselves, but I have a feeling, I, I mean, I used to watch Idle Thumbs, so I can't imagine anybody <laughs> not knowing who you are. So uh, it's kind of funny. I, I, I can definitely imagine people not knowing who I am. It's easy <laughs> for me to imagine. But yeah, you. Uh, so you were on Idle Thumbs. You used to work back. Where were you before Campo Santo? I don't even remember. Uh, yeah. So I'm at Valve now. Before that, I was at Campo Santo, where we made Firewatch. Before mm -hmm. that, I was at uh, Double Fine for a few years, and then before that, I was at Irrational Games, where I think you and I very narrowly missed each other. I think you went to Irrational like almost immediately after I left. That's my understanding of that situation. Yeah, there were big shoes to fill, and I didn't fill them. I was in the art team. Yep, they were unrelated shoes. <laughs> they were completely different shoes, man. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So you've moved around a bit. So that was, you must have moved from Boston to San Francisco to work at Double Fine. Well, I moved from San Francisco to Boston. I was, uh, mm -hmm. I was born in San Francisco, moved around a bunch as a kid, uh, moved back to San Francisco, uh, where I spent my entire adult life except for those couple of years in Boston and then now in Seattle as of last year. Got so it. I was, I was San Francisco. It's still to this day, most of my life has been spent in San Francisco. That's where your heart, um, are you going to end up back there? That will change. You know, I don't think I will, which is sad mm -hmm. for me. Um, when I left San Francisco uh, to, to take the irrational job in Boston, I remember, you know, I was in my, I was in my mid twenties, I guess. And I, it, it didn't, it felt like a, it was just kind of like a fun thing I was doing. I remember it didn't feel like a huge emotional wrenching um, move. And I didn't realize this at the time, but I think in retrospect, it's because I think deep down, I must've known I was coming back eventually. Mm -hmm. Like I never even got a new driver's, like I never got a Massachusetts driver's <laughs> license, you know, things like that. I, when I think I wasn't, again, this wasn't intentional or conscious, but when I think back, I'm like, oh yeah, I wasn't really permanently doing this, I guess, even though I thought I maybe was. Whereas last year when, uh, when we left San Francisco with my, with my, uh, with my wife, we, I certainly realized well, I'm never coming back here. 
um, it was really tough. It was a really like emotionally, it was very difficult um, because I could I could tell this is a this is a final move. I mean, I you know whether or not I'm in Seattle for the rest of my life that that I have no idea, but I definitely know um, I definitely know I won't be coming back to San Francisco, and it's not out of any lack of love or affection for it. It's just that it feels like an impossible place to return to at this point. Oh um, wow, that's a deep statement, man. I still it's just unaffordable, you know, I mean, yeah. I can't imagine any future in which I could, you know, we had a great rent controlled apartment right on the corner of Golden Gate Park. And it was awesome. I mean, it was the best apartment I've ever had in my life. It was wonderful. But once we moved out, we gave up our obviously we gave up our rent control. And it's like, well, I can't I can't get back in now. You know, we, if I'd stayed there, that would have basically worked out. But, um, you know, uh, it just it felt permanent and it was tough. It was a tough move. Oh, that's rough, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I, oh, it's okay. I mean, we made the decision intentionally, but you know, it yeah, was, yeah, it's hard for me because, like, I, in my head, San Francisco, there's a thing that San Francisco is, and it's kind of like this amazing place where I spent my early 20s. It's this perfect place. Every time I go back for GDC, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, that's not what it was. Yeah, like 10 it's years has changed that place. Yeah, San Francisco is a complicated, it's a complicated place that has always been has always been changing and continues to and uh the ways in which it changes tend not to be incredibly friendly to the people who were already there <laughs> uh, yeah that is true most of the people i knew when i was in san francisco weren't from there it's actually rare to meet somebody who's actually from there it's kind of yeah cool. that, i feel like that's true of most great cities and i think i mean that's something i like about them i'm very much a city i'm extremely extremely a city person by disposition and um there, there is definitely something extremely wonderful and valuable about having deep roots in a place like there absolutely is. But there's also something to be said for what can for, for what results in a place where people are primarily there by choice um, from many different places. Um, if, if anything, the you know, the difficulty, in my opinion, with places like San Francisco at this point is that people are from too similar like there, you know there's a bunch of people who aren't from there but they're all kind of from similar other places that aren't there you know whereas what you really want in a great city is for lots of different people who aren't from there but they're from many different places yeah that's but really, you can say the same thing about city. seattle's the same way right like everyone the seattle austin san francisco triangle mm -hmm. is very yeah. strong i feel like people they just move around between those three cities a lot yeah you could add portland in there as kind of a like mm. Portland's trying. No, Portland's great. I mean, all those places that you said are great, but you know, there's just this pattern that's kind of happening to all mid-sized American cities right now. You know, like I feel yeah. like that thing that that triangle you said. I think you could extend that to well, at least mid-sized coastal uh, uh, American cities. Certainly, um, it's challenging. I don't think those places have figured out how to deal with the trends that are going on. Hmm. That's interesting. How was your move to uh, Seattle, like in general? Were you oh, able to really handle, good. I mean, the weather there is awful, right? You've been there a year. No, you know, everyone like declares that, but I feel like that is more of a, like a meme than, um, than anything I've found to be borne out uh, in, in, in any kind of extreme way. I mean, it, it rains, but it doesn't rain torrentially. It mm -hmm. kind of, it mists a lot. It drizzles a lot. The weather is sort of crisp and chilly more than cold, which I like. I like being able to wear, you know, a coat, like a real coat. Um, 
the weather is not it's it's honestly pretty similar to san francisco and i would describe san francisco weather as essentially my perfect weather which is it's relatively moderate most of the year the difference is the winters are tougher here but not in an extreme way not compared to boston like no no the winters here are worse <laughs> i mean the difference is the uh for some people it affects it affects people differently but for me yep. seattle it's the lack of sun right like, yeah you get into those winter long nights for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That is a thing. Well, the, uh, yeah. So you moved up to Seattle. You are, yep. you perfectly adapted to the weather. How about Valve? Mm-hmm. What's it like going from like uh, Campo Santo? Because we should probably explain this because not everybody knows this, right? Uh, like you yeah, worked... yeah, there's no reason people would know this. Yeah. Yeah. So you worked at Campo Santo and. Yeah, Camp... we were. A... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You can explain it better than I can. Sure. So yeah, Campo Santo was a small roughly 10 person uh, studio in San Francisco. Uh, and we, uh, the studio came together, you know, pretty much explicitly um, to make a game called Firewatch, which we did release in 2016, um, uh, which was, a, I mean, I would say that was the most rewarding game project I've I've ever worked on. Uh, it, worked with really really great people some of whom i'd already known for many years some of whom i'd worked with at past past uh, studios like uh, double fine um and then in uh last year in early last year um we became part of valve and because valve uh unlike most companies of valve's sort of stature i guess uh they only have one office there's uh, valve has one office in the seattle area and you you know if you work at valve you pretty much work out of that office and so we all relocated um from san francisco to seattle or bellevue technically is where seattle is uh, or where valve is located but i I personally live in seattle Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's uh like 35 times as many people as campus so it's a very it's a very different scale but it's interesting because there are projects at within valve that span team sizes ranging all the way from like half a dozen people up to you know 30 40 50 people oh, all right um, i, I want to get into all of this but let's start with like the uh we're after firewatch what happened did you think like oh we want to be hired by valve uh or were you i mean no, obviously you're spinning up a new game right yeah it just kind of Honestly, it wasn't like any kind of plan or um, I mean, there's there's really like no way to explain it other than just Valve approached us at a certain point and asked if we were interested and we were extremely surprised. Like there wasn't any um, strategic uh, planning to sort of try and encourage something that like we, we hadn't even it hadn't even occurred to us that that was a thing that could happen let alone something that we were that we were seeking it was it was just it was a it was a totally for us a totally out of left field uh proposal that uh you know was unexpected but when you know when we started talking to them about it it was like oh this actually you know could be really interesting i mean i've known i i was a before i was a game developer i was a game journalist um uh ages ago like 15 years ago at this point which is terrifying and um, I worked for, I was, I was the editor-in-chief of a site called Shack News, which is um, traditionally very much a sort of PC-forward, uh, you know, 
uh, site that it was originally founded in the mid 90s as a quake blog, essentially. And so it had deep roots in, in that whole sort of scene. And Val, you know, Half-Life was also directly came out of that entire kind of scene and engine and everything. And so um, because of that, uh, I had just sort of always, not always, but I had for a while kind of just known some people, some folks at Valve, like Robin Walker, who made the, was one of the people who made the original Team Fortress and has been at Valve uh, ever since then. And just, just some other cool folks who worked there. So I'd always kind of like, there were a few of us at Campo sort of had these loose ties to some people at Valve and were familiar with the studio and kind of the way that they work a bit and some people there. So that I think definitely made it easier for us when they came to us with this idea to uh, to be a bit more like, I guess to, to, to come to a decision maybe more quickly than we than we would have mm-hmm. otherwise, because a lot of us just had sort of pre-existing um, associations. And I will say though that the having those pre-existing associations did not necessarily make it less surprising what it actually feels like to work at valve i will uh, say oh yeah i was just gonna say yeah, like we were all it, yeah. surprised when valve uh yeah, it's been we were a too. <laughs> long time since valve bought a company that really we were all like what valve is buying companies again because I, I think the rest of us are in a mindset where so much of when you talk about valve you think about steam right like you've and obviously Valve makes games, but you don't really think about those. When you think about Valve, you think about Steam, to me at least. I, I mean, I think I think that that's I think that that's true for a lot of people. I mean, I think I think that's the case. I mean, I guess a few responses to to all that stuff. I mean, there's sort of an infinite amount of stuff you can talk about when it comes to game development. It goes on forever. But um, the uh, I completely what was I what was I saying right before? You were talking about the. Um, the way how you weren't prepared for how much valve changed oh, like the culture oh, shock probably or yeah kind of it's more so actually this relates to what to what you're saying as well i guess the thing that that i hadn't really occurred to me is just how many things go on inside of valve so it's a company of like i don't know a little over 300 people or so i don't know what the exact count is um and that's big but like there are triple a game teams that are multiple times that size right like an assassin's creed team is two to three times as far as i'm aware Mm -hmm. that but but within valve there are multiple game teams there's steam there are hardware teams there are like full-time video production people um i mean there there are so many different projects going on video production people yeah, like they made that movie about the. I'm not a super clued in Dota person, so don't ask me to like oh, talk about this in detail. But there was like that whole Dota um, documentary, and as far like again, I'm not super connected I, to this, but as far as I'm aware, assume... that was made essentially within Valve by by those folks. Um, don't don't quote me on this in case I'm getting some detail of it wrong. But but yeah, I mean, there's people doing like a huge range of stuff inside Valve, and that was something I had never personally encountered at a single studio before you know i mean typically those would be things where you work for the game studio and then the game studio is owned by or has a relationship with a publisher and then that publisher has a bunch of other um subsidiaries or what have you and they do a bunch of different things and maybe they're owned by a holding company and then that holding company owns other companies that do different things but but at valve it's like it's a relatively small for for a company 
that does as much as it does, it's a rel- it's relatively small in terms of like it has one office and a few hundred employees, but it just does all that stuff in house. And it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, it's yeah. a, it was a shocking, not shocking in a negative way, but it was just a surprising thing to encounter. Like, Oh yeah. If you, I mean, if I, in theory wanted to learn, I mean, I would have to probably have like an interesting idea here, but like, if I wanted to learn a lot more and get a lot better at video production, I could probably just do that inside of valve because there are other extremely knowledgeable, experienced people doing it. And I could, you know, learn from them and move my desk over to their zone and like help out with what they're doing and try to take, try to try to use, you know, whatever skills I have to help them out. And then in the meantime, sort of absorb some of the stuff that they have. Um, are so you, like I've gotten are you encouraged to, be a much to do that? Programmer. Yeah, yeah. Like I've become a much better programmer since being at Valve. I, like I, so actually this is something I'm curious to talk about with you. Like I am always, I, my whole career in video game development has always been extremely multidisciplinary. So I don't have a background, like I don't have any um, educational background in anything re- related to game development particularly. And so everything that I know and do and practice regarding um, the things that I, I personally do, which include um, game design, writing, music composition, web development, like uh, some scripting and programming, uh, that stuff is all stuff that I learned on the job um, just from the, the various places I've worked and projects I've done outside of work. Uh, and so like because I mean, so because of that, I, I have this sort of in, intense combination of interest in lots of different parts of the game making progress process, which I think aids me as a game designer in particular, but also like crippling insecurity about not being a sort of multi computer science degreed, you know, brain genius when it when it comes to, to some of these skills. Um, and it's interesting being at Valve because you have both kinds of people there i mean there are people who are just mega like publishing siggraph paper caliber you know engineers doing deep deep level engine work that i could just never even begin to touch and then you have then you have people with that much more um much broader skill set and then everything in between yeah so yeah there is a lot of opportunity to sort of grow your own skill set and the grass is always greener, right? Like, because you touched on it, but if you're if you're a tech artist or a journalist at a studio, you do certain things that other people can't do, but it's hard to, to realize that or recognize that, especially because at any given time, you'll be in a room and you'll be like, I'll, I'll make something and I'll explain to somebody how I did it. And I'm talking to somebody who's done like, maybe technically way deeper systems. Like yep. you're never the expert, but you need somebody who understands the seams in between everything. It's really important. It's the moments like the, when you open the door in Bioshock Infinite and the light comes in and the birds fly away and all that, somebody (laughs) has to be the one that, that says like, that's important. Yeah. Like the, that knows how to do a little bit of everything and knows how to just get that experience. And so I think the, the journalist stuff is important in large studios, way more important in smaller studios. Uh, and definitely, yeah. Valve sounds like uh, I don't know. Uh, Valve's just crazy. I, I think Valve is one of the lower turnover turnover rates of like most places. I'm sure places. that's true. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, that is. I, I don't know what any of the statistics are, but I would be shocked if that weren't true. Um, yeah, and to your point about about studio, you know how um, 
generalists versus specialists have different almost relative value within smaller and bigger studios. I mean, I highly agree with you for sure. I mean, I basically went from, you know, going from Irrational to Double Fine to Campo, I went from kind of full scale AAA, right, to um, I would say large indie, Double Fine um, was and I think still is about 60 people. Mm-hmm. Um, to Campo, which was about 10 of us. I think we maybe reached maybe a, a dozen, like including contractors for, at times. Um, uh, and definitely, I mean, part of it I think is that I got more experienced and ex- improved my skill set, but also the smaller the, the team, the more important and useful you can be as a generalist. And so being at Valve is interesting in the sense that it kind of contains teams of all those different sizes. Um, so that kind like you can sort of slot into i guess places where you can be more or less useful like i um for instance like i worked on um <clears throat> dota underlords for for a bit which is um like here's an example i guess of like here's a game valve actually released recently uh that i think is like counter to the narrative that valve um doesn't make games like as much anymore <laughs> which is honestly like kind of a, an opinion that I sort of had before joining Valve. Um, but now that I'm there, I'm like, oh, we actually ship stuff a lot. Uh, yeah. It's just like across a, just sort of, a, a, I guess, a sort of a broader swath of types of things. But um, like Dota Underlords came out a few months ago and I worked on that for a while, um, kind of in part to like help myself grow. Like I worked... Like I was writing C++ code, which is not like I'd never checked C++ code into a shipping project before. Right. Like I had written um, C sharp for with Unity uh, and and Lua at Double Fine. But C++ feels like, again, as sort of a non computer science person, C++ just like feels like scary and weird. Yeah. Um, were but you yeah, like was... a were you like a technical designer or were you a programmer? I just wondered. Um, well, on that in particular, I was doing a bunch of like UI implementation and stuff. Uh, um, uh, it, I mean that that's a game where most of the game, as far as the user is concerned, is UI, right? Like it's mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the game at all, but but it's a it's a game where you sort of like pick a bunch of units and then put them on a board and then your your board of units fights the enemy's little army of units automatically but most of what you're doing is like buying stuff from a store and you know choosing which units you're going to use and upgrading your stuff and things like that so most of what you're doing is pushing buttons and dragging things around so like most of the sort of player input in that game is UI uh so there's a lot of there's just a lot of stuff to do in terms of UI implementation and design um so I was doing that uh basically a combination of design and implementation of, of like UI stuff. And that's what you were doing at Valve, right? Uh, but before that, when you were doing like oh. Unity and Lua stuff at Double Fine, what, like what was your actual role? Uh, well, so Double Fine was, was uh, so here's here's an example of what I mean by like the diff, sort of generalist, the smaller team you get, right? So at Double Fine, I was like different things per project. So I, I wrote, I wrote a game with Ron Gilbert called The Cave, which was a kind of um, side-scrolling puzzle platformer game. It was like a traditional graphic adventure game, like Ron Gilbert's older games, like Monkey Island, but 
in a side-scrolling platformer format kind of that's and so he and i wrote wrote that game together so that was like script writing and then that bleeds into narrative design um because uh when you know writing and implementation of writing in a game is inevitably also a design um an issue of design and then i also did the soundtrack to a game at double fine called space space df9 and then i was also a designer on the original prototype of space based df9 so that involved um design work and lua scripting you know to implement um both the music and other and other design elements of the game um Jesus. so you do so have like, a that is a broad skill set man you are like well, a renaissance you, man you must have a broad skill set because you make it made an entire game by yourself which i want to talk about as soon as i finish talking about okay. this um uh and so then but so but my point is that at and then, oh, I also did a bunch of web development at Double Fine. So, like, I made the website that we used to manage backers of the um, uh, Broken Age Kickstarter campaign. So, like, we had a whole website that uh, would that allowed us to sort of like manage all your rewards and stuff after the Kickstarter campaign was no longer um, running. Like, once the Kickstarter campaign is done, you can't like you don't have as many features from it anymore. So, we made a whole internal website that we used to manage all that stuff. And I worked with um, like a, a back-end database programmer guy on that, and I did all of the design and front-end programming on that site. But so, so it's almost like on each of those projects that I worked on, I was sort of doing a different thing. Whereas this is my point about the smaller the team gets. On Firewatch at Campo Santo, I was doing all those things on the same project, right? So, like, I was on the, um, I was on the. Uh, kind of story like writer's room kind of there were like three or four of us who were the sort of writer's room who worked through the uh story beats and and plot and narrative design questions and then my like on the daily basis i was primarily a game designer which meant implementing the gameplay and narrative into the game um with our just with our custom tools that that are that our programmers wrote as well as i did some amount of gameplay programming um on various systems and then i was also the composer so i did um I, I wrote and recorded all of the music for the game which i also implemented um myself and then i also sort of ended up being the um uh, i ended up being the sound designer which was something i had not done before and uh that was that was kind of something like, oh, I've worked with audio. I guess I'll do the sound design. You know, it was um, so we we worked with some external sound designers, and then increasingly on the project, I ended up doing a lot of that myself as well. And then I did all of the implementation of that sound design. And so the thing that I really took from that experience was of doing all those different things um, in a single project was game design is also all of those things like. I I really I think that I don't know that this is necessarily obvious to a player necessarily um and if it's not it's fine it's not meant to be showy at all but like the music was imp like being the person who both was a game designer but also the composer and implementing the music I was able to implement the music in a bunch of cases in reactive ways using the game systems subtly to try and tie in with the narrative design and that's something that like I've done other game soundtracks for other games in the past. Like I did the soundtrack to Gone Home, for instance, and uh, that was something that 
um, and this is not a negative point at all, it's just how it worked. Like that was a thing where I worked with Steve Gaynor, the designer of the game, and we went back and forth and kind of figured out what we wanted to do for the music. But when a given track was done, I just handed it over and then Steve or whoever on the team would implement it. And then if we needed to do revisions, it would go back. But like, it was very much deliverables, you know, like we'd work together on what we needed. But then when I had the asset, you know, you deliver the asset, they implement it. Um, and that's and that's often how it works with composers. But on Firewatch, being uh, serving both of those roles myself meant I really understood what the game systems were and what they needed and, and how that would play into these other parts of the game that I was also working on. And so I ended up also writing like a music manager that was doing like observing player behavior in certain areas and then triggering music appropriately and being the, the person responsible for both parts of that, the system and the assets, I think was hugely beneficial. And again, like, I don't know if that necessarily like sold additional copies of the game. It definitely, I'm sure it didn't. Um, but just for me personally, uh, as both a designer and a composer, I was really happy. Like it, mm -hmm. it was, I, I just learned a ton about game design because I think game design connects to every single other part of the game. And the, the, the more you can understand holistically all the different parts of the game, I think the better served you are with it. And so to your point, or sorry, to you, like you did literally all that stuff, except for the soundtrack, you did all of the stuff on your game. So I would imagine that you... The, all the stuff I just said is exactly what you were thinking about every single day, presumably. Yeah, I mean, the cohesion is really important. I think like the, uh, you touched on a lot of things that are really cool. And it reminded me like last night I was playing Death Stranding and the music rolled in and when the music rolls in has such an emotional impact. And the fact that there's certain like barks, uh, lines that somebody would say in the world, but it was scripted so they would only happen at certain moments in the music. So mm -hmm. it didn't like stomp on each other and stuff like oh, that. Oh, totally, yeah. That's, That's like... Yep masterfully done i think having uh, an eye for that is so important and so good i wish like for a game about uh kind is about these musicians that are getting together so you would think there'd be mm -hmm. more focus in the music than there was but i'm actually not a musician and i you know <laughs> i worked with mitchell and i did the best i could to integrate that but there's uh i i didn't do the music for kind i think that's hella impressive in all seriousness that's, that's so interesting that you're not a musician because uh when i like playing kind it feels like I mean, it, feel, it feels like it was made by someone who, at the very least, cares deeply about music. Like, I would have assumed from playing that game that you were a musician of some sort because the game feels like it cares a lot about music and musicians. Well, I was, um, I mean, I always, every game I've worked on actually, for some reason, tends to have a really strong soundtrack. I generally, uh, like it because I, I come from an art background and usually the music I'm listening to when I make something is extremely important and changes it. And mm -hmm. it, it's important to me, like the way I get in the in the zone to make certain things is I have to have mm -hmm. a good soundtrack. And I, when I started uh, Kine, I was the the genesis behind it at the very beginning was I was like really obsessed with La La Land, that film. I was going to say, it's very La La Land. <laughs> yeah, you could, uh, you could tell. Like it was like a fan. It was like if I'm a game developer that was a fan of La La Land wanting to make a puzzle game. And this is like how it ended up being. Uh, so yeah, I at the time I remember I was really frustrated. Uh, how do you put it? 
We could talk about what happens in between projects because I am curious. I'm so you... frustrated I didn't say La La Land before you did because now <laughs> that you already said it, it feels like it was just I could be bullshitting you. But that was like literally what I had in my head most of the time when I was playing it. Oh, that's beautiful. That worked then. Yeah, mm -hmm. I um, I did love that film a lot. And I know at the time I, I tend to get into these funks between games when you're trying to figure out what to do next and you're like looking up the mountain, trying to figure out like what you're going to do next. At the after you've just finished a project and you i tend to uh get into a funk world to you try to become the market whisperer every uh, you just <laughs> you know like yeah, everything's been done yeah. like yeah. there's nothing you can do that hasn't know, already been right? done oh, there's nothing God. that you know uh being a game developer is probably a stupid thing to be the only thing stupider than trying to be a game developer is trying to be a musician dumb. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, that's true. I, I can literally tell you a story about that. So I was a, I was a music major in college. I went to UC Berkeley and got a music degree because I was an idiot. And, <laughs> uh, it was literally because I played in bands and stuff in high school. And I would, when I went to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or like, I didn't, I just did. I was like intensely unambitious, um, at that age. And, I just didn't have any clue and <laughs> and I was okay. like it worked I like out music I was like I played in bands and I was like I like music I'll do music uh that was that was it was that was like the decision and then in the music major I was with all these people who you know are like concert level pianists and un unbelievable sort of opera singers and all you know people who had been practicing their performance craft deeply since like age five and I was like uh <laughs> like shit this is more hardcore than i expected um and anyway i remember going to so that experience really taught me don't try and become a professional musician not that no one should but that i shouldn't because i'm like i'm not like better than these people are you shitting me this is ridiculous um so i'm like well i definitely would not succeed if i tried to become a professional musician because i'd be competing against like infinite other people who are all like in the league of these other people um but anyway the the point that is actually like relevant to, to what you're just saying even though i know you meant it as kind of a joke was uh there was a, i remember there was a career fair at my school and the university printed out these brochures that um <clears throat> had listed all the different majors for uh, all the different concentrations you know that the school offers and they ranked them by percentage of graduates of that degree who ended up finding a job in the field in which their degree was earned and music was i'm not exaggerating in last place of course of every single major at the entire school which uc berkeley is a big school i think there were twenty thousand undergraduates there uh so there are a lot of different majors there are a lot of different things you can study at that school it's a you know big big university uh, and music was the worst uh, out of all of them. If you wanted to actually have a professional career in the thing that you studied, that is the worst possible choice you could make. So that was another thing that was like, okay, maybe I should figure out something else to do in my life. Because uh, I don't think I'm going to be one of like this tiny percentage that that figures that out. No, it's I totally I totally get it. I didn't know what I wanted to do either. When I graduated, keep in mind, like I didn't get uh the game magazines and stuff from stores when i was a kid i i got mm -hmm. my brother's hand-me-downs for games so i didn't realize you could be a game developer like that didn't even occur to me uh, yeah, i don't until, think about that either like I, I loved video games played them constantly and had no idea you could do that for a living so i went to school um i had amazing grades i could have gone anywhere uh and for some reason i was 
like my parents brought me to Disney World too many times when I was a kid. And I was like, I'm going to be an animator. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So I went to school for animation. And nice. then when I was there, I almost failed out because I was playing World of Warcraft oh, wow. so much. <laughs> and I started, uh, I was the only artist at RIT, really. There, Well, not the only one, but oh, like. That's kind of surprising. RIT is like, it's a programming school, right? Like, oh, okay, sure. Nobody goes there to major in fine art. I don't know I if see, they I have see. like a fine art. I mean, I'm sure they do. But nobody goes to RIT to major in fine art. And so um, a bunch of nerds got together and wanted to have a game dev, like, after school thing, like uh, a club mm -hmm. that makes video games. Uh -huh. um, and it was all programmers. And I was the only artist there. And I, it was <laughs> That's great. That's kind of a good position to be in, though, right? Yeah. It's like the opposite of the real world, right? You can never get a programmer. <laughs> right. I know. God, yeah. They're precious, precious resources. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I, I don't remember. I don't know how we get back to, like, normal conversation. But yeah. I, I kind of stumbled around. Um, I stumbled around, too. I just kind of stumbled into game development as well. Maybe not quite as meandering a path as you did. Yeah, mine was extremely meandering. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't have any, I, I, I mean, I'm going to say this continues to this day. I've never really known like what I want to do when I grow up. Um, like yeah. it's never been something that I, I'm actually really envious of people who have their whole lives had some kind of overriding goal and passion. Um, it's not that I'm not passionate about things. I am like extremely, I mean, I think one of my defining sort of maybe annoyingly defining characteristics is that I am extremely passionate about things like uh, about ideas and, and like creative works and, and things and, and, and people and so on. But I, but I haven't, I've never really had an overriding, like I must personally myself do this thing and achieve this. Um, I've just never had that. And so um, I kind of ended up in, I mean, obviously my career has been extremely fortunate and I've learned a ton and I, I appreciate it in a million ways, but I didn't come to it from a starting point of like, I need to make games. This is what I need to do. Like that's, I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that. Um, and it's I, the fact that I ended up doing that is bonkers to me because I really, it, it was a very odd nonlinear path. And sometimes, you know, when students or, or, uh, other um, aspiring game developer developers ask me how I how I got into this career or what they, or what if I have any advice for them. I'm just like, oh man, I don't know. Don't don't use my thing as yeah. like any kind of template because it won't work. You guaranteed. can't you like, can't follow this. You do the thing that makes no. the most sense or is the most interesting at any given time, and that kind yeah. of moves you and you like a pachinko machine. You end up somewhere maybe not even yeah. where you expected, right? Totally. That's I would yeah. yeah. That's how I would my say life has if, been if as well. There's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would say if there's if there is any one thing that I could that I would like reproduce from from my path that I do think was maybe the one thing that I did that actually has had a tangible outcome, even though it wasn't intentional at the time, um, is maintain like form and maintain strong creative partnerships early and keep them uh, like I, uh, the, the, the indirectly, the reason that I'm a game developer now is because I founded, uh, I co-founded a website called Idle Thumbs, which event, you know, years later became the podcast Idle Thumbs that I mentioned earlier, but originally it was a, like a video game website with, uh, a bunch of other folks, including 
Jake Rodkin, who ended up being also a co-host of, of the podcast with me, and a bunch of other uh, mainly British folks, actually, that we all, who all of whom we met each other online, basically, on online forums. And <clears throat> I now have worked with Jake professionally at two different game studios, including the including valve um we hosted a podcast together for 10 years we uh co-founded idle thumbs the company together um i steve you know steve gainer who who designed gone home uh was an early contributor to the idle thumbs website he uh i still have the email that he sent us applying to write for idle thumbs um and i ended up right you know composing the soundtrack for uh, one of his games a decade later. Um, Nick Brecken is someone who I hired at Shack News when I was editor-in-chief there. And he and I, and he also became an original co-host of Vital Thumbs. He and I have now written games together. We we co-wrote um, the Star Wars X-Wing, like Rogue One X-Wing VR game for PlayStation VR. And we've worked on other writing projects together. Um you know, these are all people who none of us formed those friendships for utilitarian or careerist reasons. In fact, uh, all of those people I became friends with before any of us were pro professional video game developers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but they were all they were all people who I clearly well, obviously I liked them a lot, but also identified with their sensibility i mean like to me sense of sort of creative sensibility is one of the most important things in this entire field is like understanding your own sensibility and working with people who share your sensibility um and maintaining those connections for in some cases you know in in the case of jake who goes back with me the farthest of all those people going back like uh 18 years now i think um uh, that has been a huge, massive asset in my career, but it's not something that I, it's not something I, I did like intentionally, but looking back, it's like, that's what I would definitely, if anyone was trying to reproduce any element of my path, I would say that was the part that was valuable. Um, that still continues to be like amazingly valuable to this day. Yeah, I'll bet. I mean, I think that's pretty universal. I think the I'm sure the advice I usually give people when I go to college or colleges or whatever the like, what's your one piece of advice? Cause like, as if you can distill <laughs> yeah. it all down to one. No, right. Yeah. But it's always don't be an asshole. Like the most <laughs> important helps. thing. Like it's yeah. the opposite of that. But it's like don't be the be the person where somebody the people want to work with. You know, totally. be the person that other people think about when they're like, oh, I want to do something cool. Should I call? You know, you want it to be you. Don't don't be the asshole. Don't write people off because nobody just disappears, right? We this industry is yeah. surprisingly small. We Very all move true. around, yeah. and Very if you true. find somebody you can work well with, you want to work with them again because for various reasons, like some people just work well together, and some people are gonna be good people, but you don't work well together because you're in. You know, like you just work differently. Maybe you work in bursts, whereas they need to work in like eight hours a day or something. You know, not, a, not all, all people work together in a compatible way. Sometimes people have different sensibilities or just wildly different interests. And you just can't find the Venn diagram of where you overlap. But if you find people that you work together well, just boosting them up and hanging out around with them and working with them continuously. I think the best work tends to come from teams that have worked together for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's totally true. And I think being a good collaborator and a good team member is definitely, 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's ultimately, I think, more important strictly than just raw, raw skill. Um, obviously, skill and experience and competence are important. But if you I mean, if I could work with someone who was a little bit less purely skilled than someone else, but who I actually felt really comfortable collaborating with every day, I would definitely work with that person over the more difficult, but also more skilled person. I mean, the 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 sense of I mean, certainly for me, the sense of almost like safety and security you get from someone who you can be creatively honest uh, and productive with is so incredibly important. And no matter how talented someone is, if if it's like a slog to work with them or if you have to constantly be doing all this like work inside your own brain to like play the situation correctly so that you don't create problems like oh my god it's a nightmare it doesn't matter how strong they row if they're rowing in the wrong direction yeah like it just doesn't much much better way to put it i mean the the for businesses is obviously like even more true right like the um the i needed i could not port the game to stadia myself i had to hire a company to do that this is a piece of sense yeah. This is a untested platform. I don't know what Vulcan means. Like, I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know anything about this shit. Um, and so for when it came, when I was taught, the only reason I could approach Google about the Stadia thing and, and to get kind of to Stadia was because I had an old friend, Elmore, that I've worked with for like, God, six years. He was the tech director at Irrational back in the day. Do you know mm. Elmore? Yep. Steve uh-huh. Elmore? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He, we he, we were definitely both there at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So we just went to Google together, and he just did the port, right? Like. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Like a really good thing, and and this happens constantly, right? Like mm-hmm. the the people I work with or the the deals I get are because I've worked with them in the past in game development somewhere. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, like it's there's sort of one, the sort of the the notion, you know it's who you know, there are ways in which that can be bad and frustrating, you know, when it's exclusionary and bad, but there are also ways in which it's, there, there are there are positive elements to that in the sense that if you know people and you acquit yourself well with them and they remember you fondly uh, and liked working with you, that's a really positive thing. Like that's a good reason to work with someone because you're not going to make someone's life shittier by being around them you know like if they can trust that you're you're a good person to work with like that's a positive thing yeah and wrapping it back to san francisco i think the um one of the critiques i would give about san francisco is that because there is a lot of it's an area that's funded by a lot of venture capital right and there's a lot of teams there and i feel like everybody is really eager to get on the new big thing you know, like the the MMOs or free to play or this these people just got a six million dollar round of funding or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and people move around really quickly to get options and stuff. And nobody you don't spend the time to work with people for a long time. I really, truly believe if you get a group of people working together for a longer time, that's when you're more likely to get a really quality game. Um, I'm sure that's true. I mean, on that San Francisco note, I remember there's something that I always, uh, being a, when we were a small developer, small dependent developer in San Francisco, you know, people, you know, you run into someone and they ask what you do. And like, oh, I make video games. Like, oh, you're in the tech industry. And it's like, we're not in the tech industry. 
that yeah. is not is not the same thing. Like being in San Francisco and working for a company that makes software, which is is what video games are. Uh, it's a it's an amazing reminder. Like this is not the tech industry. Like the tech yeah. industry is crazy startups with massive growth intention funded by VCs or their big established public companies that started out as that other kind of thing and and now are op like you know operating at this insane insane scale and there's just there i mean there just isn't really an equivalent of that in games i mean there's pro there are probably some uh there are probably some companies that are kind of similar to that but but generally speaking like when when you and i people like us talk about game developers in the games industry they're not like that they're either kind of just mid-sized small to mid-sized companies that are owned by publishers and kind of tick along and are not crazy growth companies they kind of have whatever team size they have or they're independent developers that are basically small businesses like they're basically just getting by on an ongoing basis um and getting funding to do a project but they're not again they're not vc funded they're not looking for explosive growth because there isn't any version of scale in that way with a video game like you don't you you can't scale up like you can scale up a social media idea like it doesn't there just isn't an equivalent of that like you're making an entertainment product you're making a creative product it's only at the end of the day it's going to it's going to appeal to a certain number of people whose taste likes that thing but there's no there's no version of it where you you make something that's going to be as big as Facebook or Twitter or anything there's just and so when people you know being in San Francisco you're super conscious of the difference between what it means to be in video games versus what it means to be in tech uh, also, another big difference: the salaries. They're not the same. It's actually like, despite the fact that a lot of the same skills are in use, there's not. At least I, in my time at two different independent studios in San Francisco, there was very, very little crossover between tech people and games people. Um, we had one programmer at Campo, Patrick Ewing, who's great, who was an early Twitter employee, and he was a programmer on Firewatch. And that now he has his own studio. He made a game called NeoCab that came out about oh, a month yeah. ago. Cool. Um, but other than that, that was the only person I ever worked with in San Francisco who was a tech person. Everyone else was a games person. Like oh, Patrick took a big pay cut to to work on Firewatch. Like if you're a tech person, you're not going to go work at a video game studio because you're probably going to cut your salary in half. No, no programmer would do it. But you see it the other way around, though. Like oh, I, I used to see designers leaving games. Um, no, that's different. Yeah. You can leave you can leave games to go to tech, but you do that because you get paid better. Like, but what shit I'm saying, tons more but, money. but that's not interchange. That's like an exodus. Like what I'm what I, yeah. when I say games and tech are different, I mean like they're not. If they were the same industry, you'd have people moving back and forth, and kind of like they would both be sort of like in the mix. But no, it's not. It's like you work in games because you want to, then you leave to go to tech because you actually get paid reasonably well. Um, but they're not, but they're different. It's like, you're not moving in between, you're leaving one and going, okay, I'm done with this bullshit time to just have a normal life now. Um, so, yeah. I mean, maybe it's a point, maybe it's a minor distinction, but like, I just, I remember people mistaking games for tech a lot in San Francisco, but I'm like, I don't ever, that doesn't ever feel like it to me. Like, I don't feel like I'm working in the tech industry. I feel like I'm working in a crazy, like small business entertainment 
world, you know? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, Double Fine is a unique thing in San Francisco, and, and so was Campo Santo. I don't think there's... Didn't used to be. Didn't used to be. There used to be a bunch of studios like that. And then they all but went to tech. they've all been squeezed out, again, because of tech. Like There's so the, much money there. And you yeah. can't afford to live in San Francisco on like a game dev salary. No, not unless you're grandfathered in. I mean, that was a big challenge Campo had, right? Like a bunch of most most of us at Campo, I think, lived in the city of San Francisco, but it's because we were grandfathered in, like we were already there. Mm. But it was really difficult to hire someone at Campo and relocate them to San Francisco because they're like, uh, what? Like, holy crap, this place is expensive. And if you're already there, it's OK because, you know, you're already paying the rent that you got years ago when it, when you got an apartment you could afford. And so you're just kind of like you're grandfathered in. You're you're. But it's it's really hard to move people to that from well, a normal place. The upset of that is that you guys pioneered some pretty incredible like uh, remote team stuff, right? Like Benson was in the UK, yeah. and you guys yeah, had... James Benson, Ollie Moss, Nels. Uh, they were both in the UK, and then Nels Anderson was in Vancouver. And you guys, I'm trying to remember, were you guys the first ones that did the always on camera thing? Um, I you know, I mean, we we thought of it which maybe other people thought of it simultaneously i don't know but we didn't get that idea from other people um you know what's funny actually is the reason we did that the reason the way we came up with that is on idle thumbs uh so you know idle thumbs was a podcast and like most podcasts it was uh, funded by uh, sponsor ads and sponsorships and uh we would always test the actually we we like we be you know if we if our ad rep brought us thing that they wanted us to advertise we would always use it first to make sure that we were comfortable um recommending it i mean obviously it was still it's still paid ads but like we wanted to make sure that we weren't recommending something that was uh that we actually thought was just bad so zoom the video conferencing software was a sponsor for idle thumbs for a few episodes and so we're like okay well i guess we'll just try it out at campo santo you know to see if if it's good software and it turned out it was great we're like oh wow this is the good one this is the good version of this um and so because of that it was like we had not heard of it before but because of that uh, idle thumb sponsorship we um it ended up giving us this idea for this like always on remote setup so at campo every single one of us had a webcam on our monitor and we we're running this uh, video conferencing software all the time. So in the corner of our screen, we always had the, a grid of everyone at the studio. So whether you were in the main studio, which was about two thirds of us, or whether you were remote, which was about a third, every single individual face was still represented on the grid equally. Um, That's still some big brother shit, man. Like, I, I don't want to, like, I, mean, I don't you could, always, you could always turn it off if you wanted, you know, we weren't, you know, but but we did like it to be there so that the remote people didn't feel excluded. Yeah, I mean, I get the reasons for it. Uh, I don't know. I I mean, I don't have a solution. We could. That's we're yep. reaching the end of this it's podcast, hard. so I can't get into like the the advantages <laughs> and disadvantages of, of different ways of working remote because it is definitely like hard to. It's hard not to have an A team and a B team when you have one group that's definitely in a yeah. studio together yeah, and goes to lunch together. And, definitely. Yeah. Was, so we would. I mean, we would try and fly those folks out you know schedule obviously schedule permitted i mean jay benson had a family or ha you know continues to you know has a family has kids and so you can't just like be flying people in and out constantly but we did we did yeah you're, you're totally right um no matter how good your working practices are if most people are in the office and some people are remote 
there's definitely a vibe. There's like, you know, it's just hard. It's, it's, a, it is impossible to truly a hundred percent make the remote people, uh, as there as the people who are physically there. Mm. Um, you know, we did our best. I think we did a pretty good job, but yeah, it's never going to be perfect. You know, the one time I've seen it, the, the best in the industry and they never talk about it is rockstar when it comes to really? this. Yes. I no you idea. never, I, I want to get like learner somebody from rockstar in here someday to talk about it because i've never seen a team work so effectively where usually especially with those big studios you'll have uh people who focus on just the engine are here and then people who focus on just this part of the game are here you know and they but everybody that's working on that feature is together rockstar anybody anywhere pretty much can be working on any other team like some from what i can tell like talking to people there they they're just Maybe some of it is they have like a programmer culture and everybody's kind of mm. heads down, music sure. on. They're yep. used to only communicating with emails or something. I don't know. I mm. need to dig into it. I need to figure out how they do it. Yeah, I'm. That, I'm. I'd be very curious to to know what their practical solutions are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think this has gone on quite a bit. Thanks for hanging out with me, Chris. <laughs> Absolutely. And we this did was a lot of fun. It was, and we didn't get into like half the things I wanted to talk about. So I'm gonna make you All come right. back again someday. I'm happy to do so. Yeah, this was this was a blast. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been Chris Reno. That uh, this has been Chris Remo. <laughs> common, common mistake. Reno. My bad. Yeah. Now this has been uh, Chris Remo and Gwen Frey, and you've been in the dialogue box. <laughs>